I've titled this message, The Heart of Rainmaking Prayer. The Heart of Rainmaking Prayer. And we're going to look at two passages, both of them written by Luke. We're going to look at Luke's Gospel, uh, <coughs> excuse me, chapter 24, verses 44 through 49. Then we're also going to look at Acts chapter 1, also written by Luke. And we're seeing pretty much uh, the same scenes in this, but different perspectives and different <clears throat> details. <coughs> Excuse me, and I'll be coming back to these um, throughout um, the message. And forgive me for coughing. Uh, Debbie and I are still getting over the, uh, <clears throat> the horrible plague uh, from Christmas. <clears throat> COVID is just too nice a name for it. The wretched plague of whatever, 2020 till now. <clears throat> Doesn't want to go away. <clears throat> but anyway, Luke 24, verses 44 through 49. Jesus is speaking. He says to them, yeah, let's stand. And the reason we do that is just to give attention. Amen. And I'll be reading scripture later on. You won't stand, but you're going to give your attention to this right now because we hear the word of God spoken Sometimes without commentary, it speaks to us so clearly. So our Lord said this. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their mind to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and that on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And then Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Again, Luke is writing, in the first book, He's speaking of the book we just read from, his gospel. O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Spirit, which he said, you've heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Wow. Would you bow your head and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing, amazing passage of Scripture from uh, Dr. Luke. Illuminate our minds and hearts tonight, Father, I pray. We've heard for three weeks about rainmaking prayer. Seal this tonight in our hearts, I pray, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said Amen. You can be, you can be seated. <clears throat> the most important event in history, not just in a century, not just in a millennium, 
the absolute most important event uh, in the life of mankind took place 2,000 years ago. And I'm speaking of that seismic moment when the creator God himself in the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, visited planet Earth. Think about that. God stepping into his creation. The writer of Hebrews speaks of this in the very first chapter. And he contrasts the revelation that had taken place in the Old Testament with the coming of the Son. And he says this long ago. At many times, in many ways, God spoke to the fathers, that is the patriarchs, by the prophets and also the, uh, the uh, ancient Israel. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom he created the world. That scripture should absolutely arrests our attention. Notice that he contrasts the many, spoke through many prophets, different things, and then the greatest conjunction in the history of conjunctions. But in these last days, people say, are we living in the last days? That was just answered, wasn't it? The last days began when Jesus ascended after his death and resurrection on the cross. He ascended. And then he pours out his Holy Spirit. We'll see that in a moment. And they continue until his return. And we also see that confirmed in the Great Commission. So from this passage, we learn these three things. The commands of the Son are singular. The commands of the Son are supreme. The commands of the Son are final. He has spoken. There's no new revelation coming. We've got what we need until his return. Jim's message was um, inspired by Elijah's sign of rain. Now, that was a natural event. There had been a natural drought uh, in the material world, in the physical world. They'd been without rain for three years. Of course, that causes all sorts of problems, not only thirst, but uh, starvation. Uh, very, very difficult times. And then he prays and this deluge comes. Now, it's important to know that that is not necessarily a pattern for us, but it's a sign to us and a picture to us. Uh, I know it's not a pattern for us, because, or you know, it didn't bring revival at the time. Just shortly thereafter, an, a despondent Elijah is meeting with God, and he says, I'm the only one that's really you know, left who really believes in you. And God says, no, I have preserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, that sounds like a large number, but we're talking about the entire nation of Israel. And so wholesale revival and awakening had not occurred. But this is a picture of God's heart in the natural world, a sign from the prophet of what God longed to do for them. And it's a picture that he can and has done and will do in this, these last days, this age that I like to call the gospel age. And so I want to focus on the heart of rainmaking prayer. And I want to look at three things specifically. The heart of rainmaking prayer. Its source, its focus, 
and its power. Its source, its focus, and its power. Okay, let's look at rainmaking source. Acts 1, we go back to Acts. Uh, While staying with him, he ordered them to go to Jerusalem, to not depart, to wait for the promise of the Father, which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit that would come not many days after that. Jesus, on the uh, the night of um, Passover, he fulfilled that feast. He was the lamb that for uh, hundreds of years they had sacrificed on Passover. He was the fulfillment of that picture and that ceremony. And then uh, 40 days later now, after uh, uh, after his resurrection, he has appeared to the disciples again and again. He has shown them various proofs. At one point, he appeared to over 500 people at one time. This is not something that happened, you know, with just a couple people in a closet. But he commands them to wait because they may have not realized this. When he departs from them, when he gives them these last instructions and ascends, it was on a Thursday. And we know this from the time frame because it's 40 days after his resurrection. It's 10 days before Shavuot. That's the Hebrew word for Pentecost or the Hebrew word for that feast. It means weeks. It was the Feast of Weeks because it occurred six weeks after uh, the Sabbath. Uh, we know it as Pentecost, which is the Greek word, and it means 50. It's 50 days after the Passover. So it would have been 10 days that they would wait. Whether they knew that or not, I'm not sure. Why am I telling you all this? Because the day of Pentecost is when Jesus pours out his spirit upon the disciples and the apostles. And this, this um, group of semi-disconnected people in one moment become the church. They start doing churchy stuff immediately. Peter stands up, preaches the gospel. You know, where did he learn that? I mean, he gets up and preach. He does exactly what Jesus says. Preach, you know, the, the suffering of Christ. Preach forgiveness of sins and repentance. He does that. 3,000 people come to know. They baptize them. They begin to have prayer meetings. They begin to have uh, small groups. They begin to have communion. And so the church is launched. And I point this out because the source of rainmaking prayer, the only source of rainmaking prayer is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not coming from anywhere else. It's going to come from you. In Matthew 16, Jesus had promised the apostles that he would build a people of extraordinary authority and power. He said this, I, Peter had confessed that he's the Christ. He said, who do you say, men, I'm? Say that, uh, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. And to that, Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter's confession that Jesus is the son of God on that confession, a new people would be built. That word church is the Greek word ekklesia. You've heard it before. And the Greeks used it to describe an assembly, a civic assembly. It's not a crowd. It's not just a, um, uh, it's, it's a people that have gathered for purpose in assembly, in order. And so the church that Jesus Christ uses to bring about rainmaking prayer is a church that's under Christ's instructions. They've arranged themselves as best they know how. 
under his commands in divine order. And I tell you what, I think Grace Covenant Church has really got that going. Our bishop has done a great job. Actually, I like to say the bishop. Sometimes I just bring it up so I can say the bishop. The church that Jesus built is the sole source of rainmaking prayer because only it has the power of prevailing spiritual warfare. Notice when Jesus said, I'm going to build my church, look what he follows that with. And the gates of hell will not prevail. In that century, gates would have been the seat of authority. Um, because that's where the government would say, be like our town square or like our capital. And so Jesus says that this church, this entity that he is going to build, will eventually destroy evil itself. It will destroy the demonic power. It will destroy the very gates of hell. The church and the church alone has that power. No other organization. People get caught up in government. Government's great. We need it. Get caught up in all sorts of different things. They walk away from Christ or they, or they, uh, you know, they, they try to bring revolution or whatever. We've got the power here to change and to overcome evil, the church alone. Secondly, the church, the church that Jesus builds is the source of rainmaking prayer because it alone can transform men and women, birthing them into the kingdom of God. Look what he says in verse 19. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Keys open gates. Jesus had said to the Pharisees, you are barring people from the kingdom of God. The church does the opposite. We open the doors. And how do you do that? You do that when you are exercising Spirit-led, spirit-filled prayer, you're opening a door for someone. And uh, I was praying on I-95 one day, which is a good place to pray. You know, I'm really inspired to pray on I-95. Because if I don't use my mouth for good, you know, something bad will come out. Now, I don't say bad words, but Debbie, the spirit's the same, you know. And Debbie says, no, we're not going to be talking about other drivers on this trip, are we? <laughs> you know, so. But I was, riding, <laughs> I was riding along on, why are you laughing? Have you, you must know somebody that does that every now and then. You probably met somebody who told you about that. Um, so uh, I was driving along, and I was praying for uh, uh, some members of my family, uh, one of my kids' spouse, Etc. And I'm praying and I was thinking about the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden I just really realized, hey, I got the keys. Yeah, yeah. Amen. I said, in Jesus' name, you foul spirit, you let them go in Jesus' name. I mean, I really got angry. And I prayed and there was a power. And I knew I had them at that point. I knew I had them. And they are just sliding down the creek. They're going to hit the water here pretty soon. These keys refer to the spirit-empowered prayer and preaching of the church that alone opens the gates of heaven for men and women, boys and girls. We just saw four. Hallelujah. We're going to open the gates. We're going to open up the gates wide for this city. Amen. 
All right, the church that Jesus built is the only source of rainmaking prayer because it alone has his actual presence. In Matthew 18, not 16, but 18, verse 20, he said this after once again talking about the church order and church unity and church discipline. He said that wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I'm going to send an angel. Is that what he said? <laughs> wherever two or three are gathered in my name, the force will be with them. I'm your, your father. No, I didn't do that very well. I'm your father. This is sad. This is really sad. Yeah, the depths that I stooped to. Sad, isn't it, Corey? Um, He comes himself. No wonder. No wonder when we worship and do what we're doing here tonight, because there's more than two or three here, right? He's here. You don't have to doubt. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to try to feel anything. He's, we got the word. We got the promise. He's good for it. Amen. So we have the actual presence of Jesus Christ. Once Debbie and I were praying downtown D.C., I'm thinking, what did I do to come to this city? It's a great city. It's magnificent. There's all these demonic powers. Just a few of us. And Debbie and I are praying up in our bedroom, right over the, right, looking right over, down on, uh, what was it, uh, Eastern Market. We're scared. I mean, kind of shaking. Demonic powers just. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit whispers to me, you know, you and Jesus Christ make a majority. I said, say that again. <laughs> I tell you what, it was like Mighty Mouse at that point, you know. It's like, boy, I came at the devil hard. Why? Because we know we have him with us. Praise the Lord. Parachurch ministries and organizations provide wonderful ministry and care. If you're involved in those, keep it up. Praise the Lord. But it's important to remember, no parachurch ministry, no movement, regardless of name, goals, or who's involved, can fulfill the ministry of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one institution, one people, one body that God has ordained to engage and produce producing rainmaking, awakening, revival, prayer, and the only entity on earth capable of defeating the very gates of hell, and that's the church that Jesus Christ builds. In 2 Samuel 6, we find the story of King David's failed attempt to bring the ark of God from the house of Abinadab back to Jerusalem. I'm not going to go into too many details. In the Old Testament, the ark represented the presence of God. Now, with a very careless zeal, David, the king, ignores God's clear instructions for transporting the ark. Those instructions taught Israel this. They taught them that only men, priests, made holy by the blood of a spotless lamb could carry the presence of God without suffering death. That ceremonial procedure represents Christ and his gospel, which alone can qualify people to be in his presence without dying. Instead, David copied the Philistines. They had sent the ark away from themselves after capturing it by capturing it by putting it on a new ox cart with two ox. And they said, "Hey, it works. Let's do it." Can't tell you how many times I've had people tell me, "Well, it works for, you know, this organization works for that company." And I've had to say, 
They ain't the church. You know, that's not the church. Sometimes people think, hey, we need to do it this way. Well, since the 1980s, excuse me, I'm getting ahead of myself. Instead, so David copies the Philistines. They have a massive crowd, big party, huge parade, dignitaries on hand. David, king, is bringing the ark back. And they have two men. Um, one of them's name is Yuza, and they are there in case the oxen stumble. And all of a sudden that happens, and Yuza simply reaches out to steady the ark, and fire comes down from heaven and kills him, dead. Which is, you know, if you're killed, you're dead. <laughs> so it's kind of, what do you call that, a double something, you know? Killed him dead. I'm from Kentucky, and that's the way we say it. So you're really dead. <laughs> so Yuza was there smoking, you know, he was just whatever. And the party came to a halt. Fear, panic, and for David, absolute dishonor and shame. Now, I don't have time to, to go into the story further, but since the 1980s, I've seen famous individuals and movements attempt to overcome evil by copying the popular techniques, political strategies, and other methods. They've relied on their own strength, their celebrity, their popularity, their numbers, their political clout, their bravado, or their personal charisma. And like Yusa, whether by scandal, burnout, or embarrassment, each of them fell. If God rebuked David, a man after his own heart, then who among us should dare to attempt to carry God's presence by any means outside of the blood-drenched church of Jesus Christ. Rainmaking's prayer's sole source is hidden in the church that Jesus builds. And the church alone is the fountainhead of such prayer and from whence it can spring. Amen? Amen. Second, rainmaking prayer's focus this is again from Acts chapter 1, just uh, verses 6 and 7. So they had come together. They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And this one kind of surprises me because he's been with them for 40 days and he's been with them for three years and he's been teaching them about the kingdom. And they're not getting it, guys. They're still not getting it. So they're still thinking. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. The Lord's so kind and so gracious. He never talks down to us. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And look here, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. This is a restatement uh, from Luke 24 and Matthew 28 of the Great Commission. You will be my witnesses. You're going to be my witnesses regionally or locally, regionally, and ultimately to the end of the earth. So by, after being empowered with the Spirit, after being birthed as the church, they are given a specific task which has not been rescinded, which is to take the gospel to all the nations, not just to the Jewish people, but to every nation. Praise God. Every nation. 
This means that the focus of rainmaking prayer, the focus of rainmaking prayer, the focus of rainmaking prayer is the command of Jesus Christ's great commission. And people have wondered from this and gotten into all sorts of trouble. The disciples had received power for one singular purpose. To be witnesses for Jesus Christ. To go and tell what they had seen in his suffering and in his resurrection, in his ascension, in his pouring out of the spirit. And to preach repentance and the forgiveness of sins. That's why the spirit came. It would seem in some circles that the spirit came to make us happy. To to just make us heal, to make us have fun. And the Lord does give us joy, righteousness, peace, and joy. And he does heal us from time to time, but that's not the whole point. The point is to win this planet and give it to our Lord as a crown. There's a militancy in that. Do you hear that? That's why we are part of a family of churches that's called Every Nation. The very name is in your face, devil. Wherever you are, we're coming. We got people that right now, tonight, that are living under the threat of death in prison because they're in countries where the beast is still active. You know, the beast from Revelation, that's despotic government. So this is Jesus' one program. He doesn't have another program. We act as though he gave us, he gave us you know, 10 cards like in, you know, what? Uh, we played recently, Debbie and I, Jen. It was totally in the house. It wasn't in Vegas or anything like that. <laughs> Just Debbie and I, and we didn't wager any bets, did we? Um, so. Just playing cards in our bedroom. So <laughs> it's not like he gives you ten cards in a game of some sort. Uh, and you just, you just pick and choose. Jesus Christ has commissioned us. He's given us a mission. And we, we hear people prophesying and preaching and all sorts of fantastical things about, well, God is now saying this and God is now saying that. No, he isn't. He's already said what he's saying. He may say to you, go there now. He may say, go this and do this when. He may say, buy that building or whatever. The Holy Spirit still speaks, but he's not changing the program. He's committed to it. And in Matthew 28, he said, lo, I'm with you always until the end of the age. That program doesn't change until Jesus Christ returns. Until I hear it out of his own mouth, I'm not changing the program. Amen. Thank God we have a leader who is committed to these things. This focus on Jesus' great commission is above every other competing mission. There's no plan B. The materials to build his church, the raw materials to build his church are out there. They're not in here. They're over there. We've got to go and get them. And we bring them in to the church through the keys of the kingdom, through the prayer and preaching of the gospel. And then Jesus builds them into his church. And he wants us to do that so much and so successfully that the nations are changed not because we've made them some sort of different government, but because we've seen so many people become part of the church that the nation itself seems as though it's Christian. Hallelujah. This is not suggestion. This is command. Jesus says in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, this is, uh, oh, forgot to put the uh, book in there. But anyways, somewhere in a, in a verse 21, 
Matthew. It's Matthew. In one of Matthew's chapters, it, there's a verse 21, and it's in the Bible. I know I saw it earlier today. He said this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. These are not suggestions. People take Moses like seriously because he had commands, you know, and he had white hair. And the son is supreme. The focus of Jesus' great commission remains in force until he returns. I already preached that. He said, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What age are we in? The last days. And when will it end? When Jesus returns. When will the Great Commission no longer be necessary? After we see Jesus face to face here on this planet, here on this earth. We're not just going to fly away sometime. I love that old hymn, but we're not just flying away. He's coming here. The leaves of the tree on either side of the river of life are for the healing of the nations. That's the gospel, guys. That's us taking the gospel. If Jesus' second coming is not for another thousand years, then the faithful rainmaking prayer warriors will still have their focus on that same great commission. Throughout history, Christians have been tempted to wander from this focus. And I can't tell you how many times I've heard preachers, pastors, whether it's at breakfast, conferences, whatever, just going right off the path. The early disciples were fixated on the politics of Rome. That was their idol. That was their God. They were totally caught up in it. So when they came together, they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You see where their hearts were? Will you at this time restore? This is where so many Christians are today. Oh, is America going to be saved? Is this going to happen? Is that going to happen? When we have a Savior who died for us, who bled out for us and said, go into all the world. And instead of going, you know, they're just doing all sorts of ridiculous pursuits. Posting some of the most unedifying things. So many professing Christians remain fixated on most anything other than his commission. Politics, conspiracies, judgment, end time schemes, speculation. I had friends who for a season were going out into a field to sit because they thought they saw angels out there. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says the secret thing. See, I got that one right. Deuteronomy 29, 29. You can look it up. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of the law. I, why, be, why be caught up in things? If it's secret, it belongs to God. He's already given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. Um, in Martin Luther's day, the papacy wanted him dead. And so some of his friends literally uh, kidnapped him as he was traveling home from the city of Worms. And he didn't even know who it was. They put a bag over his head and they, they spirited him off to a castle called the, the Wartburg. It's spelled with a W, but this is German, so it's the Wartburg. It's the uh, Wartburg, and so anyway, back in Wittenberg, which is where the Reformation had started, um, three men, three false prophets, came from a city called uh, Wickall, 
It's spelled weird, but it's supposed to be pronounced Wicca. And they, are, they believe that they have direct revelation, they, they have immediate inspiration from God, that it is, it's more important than Scripture, that the end of the world is near, and they believe that violence should be employed in destroying anything and anyone, whoever they deemed to be evil. Wow, that sounds familiar. There's people like that today. These false prophecies had the people in an uproar, so much so that the city council sent for Luther, and at his own risk, he decided to come out and come back to Wittenberg. He uh, began to uh, preach. These prophets uh, wanted a meeting with him, and they came and they met with him. They, they uh, shared all of their visions and all of their, uh, what they felt and what they believed, and Luther looked at them and said, there is nothing in Scripture, nothing in the gospel to support what you say. And one of them threatened him, you know, touch not God's prophets and, you know, we'll put a curse on you. And Luther leaned forward and said, I smite your spirit on the snout. And he told them, if you are apostles, if you are prophets, show us miracles that we might believe. And they refused Luther preached for eight days, brought the Reformation back on track, brought the people back to the Word of God. And these men left in um, shame. And later on, of course, they continued to curse Luther. And, uh, but they brought about, through their preaching, the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people through the uprisings that they, ins they helped inspire. It wasn't totally them. Listen. We have a scripture here that says that Jesus appeared to, to his apostles and to the disciples and up to 500 people in one day for over 40 days. We have a, 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 um, a Bible that shows us unparalleled ethical teaching and that goes beyond this world. We don't believe simply because we feel like believe. We believe because the scriptures has taken time to give us a testating proof. That Jesus is the Son of God, attestated. And then not just one witness or two witnesses, not even two or three that was required of the Old Testament. He gave us 12 witnesses, most of whom died to seal their witness and their martyrdom. So, it's important we believe only what Scripture gives us. Amen? And people who want to speak out of their heads... Let them do it. Just go somewhere else. Well, don't let them do it here. Amen. Third, last, rainmaking prayers power. So that we've seen the uh, the source, which is the church. We've seen uh, the focus, which is the Great Commission, the power. And you remember, he told them, uh, the, "This is written. This is from verse forty-six, Luke twenty-four." And he said to them, "Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead." Verse forty-seven. That repentance. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. There's the witnesses. And behold, I'm sending the promise of the Father upon you. The power of rainmaking prayer is twofold. It's the tandem together of spirit and truth. At the, at the well, remember in John 4, Jesus interacted with the woman and, and he said to her this. He said that the Father... The true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. The heart of rainmaking prayer is a heart that's baptized in the Holy Spirit. 
We need the Spirit. We know not how we should pray as we ought to all the time. We need the Holy Spirit. The apostles, disciples, they'd spent three years learning from Jesus, traveled with him, ate, slept with him. They spent the last 40 days with the resurrected Lord, interacting with him. He presented himself alive to them. And yet, without the baptism of the Holy Spirit, they were not prepared for the mission. You know, we can't just make this an add-on, that this is just something, you know, like, you know, to, the gifts just to kind of encourage one. This is the power to take the gospel to a hostile world. Um, on the night of his, let's look at Peter. Let's contrast Peter, pre-baptism of the Holy Spirit and afterwards. On the night of Jesus' arrest, Peter follows in the courtyard. He's accused by a servant girl. His courage melts. He denounces Jesus three times. And just for good measure, he mixes in cursing to add credibility to his betrayal. And the night ends with him running away and weeping bitterly. That's kind of the opposite of a tough guy, right? I mean, Peter was, he prided himself in being a tough guy. I, I was, I felt I was pretty tough when I was in high school. And I remember one night I, I cowered it out. I, you know, I'd been in a lot of fist fights. I won a couple of them and, uh, I had moral victory in all of them, but, um, the guy was going to know he had been in a fight. I'll just put it that way. But I just cowered it out when I, the opposite of a, of a tough guy is to run away and cry. This is precisely what Peter did. That's what he did. But 50 days later, 50 days later, this same Peter, after being baptized in the spirit, boldly stands up and being filled with the spirit, he preaches an amazing message. He preaches the gospel and he confronts the leaders who are threatening to arrest him, threatening to crucify him as they did his Lord. He preaches to them and indicts them with the murder of the Messiah. Wow. This is what the spirit can do in your life. He can take us from being cowardly, cowardly and fearful and, uh, and downtrodden and put boldness in our hearts. As C.S. Lewis, or I think it was, I can't remember who, but someone said, he puts something in our chest. We can't have men and women of courage who have nothing in their chest. The Spirit fills us. We totally depended on the spirit in the startup of this church. I mean, I didn't have, I don't know why. The Lord sent me here because I was cheap and available. <laughs> Simply. And we would just believe. We would just believe. And we believed. And God saved people by the power of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, it's the gospel. You see these two together, worship in spirit and truth, worship in the power of the Holy Spirit, and worship that is in the gospel. Praise the Lord. He says that repentance and the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name. Now, um, <clears throat> the challenge with sin is this. Modern people, and most people in history, but modern people have a strong tendency to deny the problem is sin. We live in a virtual ocean of wickedness and of tragedy, don't we? I mean, just last weekend, there were two mass shootings in California. One apparently was over a guy who was disgruntled about work. And yet people say, I think people are basically good. No, no, no. If you're good and you have a rough time at the job, you either go find another job, 
you, you put in a complaint, you, 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 try to, you, know, you do a number of things. Good people don't go get a gun and shoot several other people or a lot of other people. That is wicked. Good people don't go on social media and disparage somebody with, and, and slander them and hurt their good name simply because they don't like them. That's murder in words. It's the equivalent of murder. Uh, Jesus said, if you call your brother there no good, you'll be guilty of hell's flames. You don't have to take it seriously. God does. You know, and he says that you shall not bear false witness. And uh, that also means you shall not slander your brother or sister. It's all through the Old Testament. Look at it. The gospel has a candid view of sin. You ready for this one? Romans chapter 3. None is righteous. Not one. No, not one. Verse 11. This is Romans 3. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp, the venom of a snake, is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and ministry. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. In the first three short verses, seven times the scriptures declares that none are without sin. That all are sinful. That means when Noah found grace with God, it wasn't because he was such a great guy. It was because God had mercy on him. When Abraham, who was a, uh, just like one of the other idolaters, was chosen by God to be a patriarch, it wasn't because he was perfect and he was righteous. It was because God had mercy. When God chose Mark Cock, <laughs> mercy. When he chose you, mercy. This is not the view of the uh, religious leaders of Jesus' day. They had two kinds of sins. There was, well, nobody's perfect. But I don't do that. You ever heard anybody say that? That's their religion right there, guys. That's their self-salvation program. So, oh, yes, you do do that. You just do it in your heart. You know, open, open up a sinner. What do you see? A snake. Not a pretty sight. This is what Romans 3 says. So Jesus heals a man born from uh, blind. Blind from birth. Everybody knew it. Everybody knew this guy. And so the Pharisees bring him in. They interrogate him. They let him go. They bring his parents in and interrogate them. They let him go. They're not getting the answers they want because they don't want to believe this man was actually healed. They bring him in a second time. They say, tell us again how you... Finally, he gets exasperated and he says, why do you keep asking me these things? Do you want to be one of his disciples? All I know is this. You say he's a sinner, but how can a sinner heal a man who was born blind? No one has ever done this. No one's ever act, not been able to do these sorts of miracles. And yet you say he's a sinner. And they got so angry. This is what they said. You were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? Well, what kind of birth did they have? But you see them thinking, you are a sinner. I got some little sins, but you are a sinner. I want to ask you. Where do you point that finger? Is it, a, is it a, somebody in a different political world? Is it somebody in Hollywood? Is it somebody, is it somebody in a different, uh, you know, fighting against your rights and for their rights? Whatever it is. 
You know, is it you know, the, the, the gender wars, the, all this sort of stuff? Where is my hatred coming from? Where is my, where's my judgment coming from? You know, I was so self-righteous back in the 80s, man. I was so angry because of some scandals that happened with preachers. And the Holy Spirit sidled up to me one day and said, you're pretty upset about those preachers. And I said, oh, yeah, Lord. I said, yes, sir. They've besmirched your name and I'm ticked. And the Lord said, that's good. But let's talk about you. I didn't have the sense to know what was coming after that comment. I thought, yeah, okay, let's talk about you. Hey, Lord, tell me what you think. Tell me, let's, let's, let's work this out together. Uh, you know, after a plane crash, they reassemble all the parts in a big warehouse. That was Mark Koch for a long time right there. The Lord just said, okay. I mean, that conversation didn't just hurt. He just took me apart. Absolutely took me apart. And you know, one of the first things he showed me was that I was just as bad as everybody I was angry with. And I'll tell you something, you know, I went through a period of years and where I, I thought about things I did when I was 15 and 16 and 17 and 18 and 19 and 20. I'm not going to keep going. But anyway, and just horrified, grieving, mourning. Till I came to the point where, you know, I could say, it's not them, it's me. I need mercy. And now when I hear about some scandal or some person, some famous person who falls, whatever their persuasion is or whatever, I say, oh, God, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. When I see something new that comes out, you know, that's horrible and bad in our government or in some other world, God, have mercy. Romans 3 means all. All means all, none means none, no means uh, not one, means no one. And that means Mark Koch and every person in this room, every person watching, we all need mercy. Regardless of whether our sin has been expressed like the murderer in prison or somebody who's out doing terrible things or it's just suppressed and in our hearts, we all share something in common. Sin is universal and it's equal. Consequences are different if you act out certain sins. Yes, definitely. You can go to prison. You can do just all sorts of things. But the sin in our hearts, that horrible slander and murder in our hearts is just as real. And to that, we all share this. It was my sin. It was your sin that put Jesus on the cross. People like to bring, blame the Jews. They like to blame the Romans. But as I read my Bible correctly, it says that the Father put him there because of our sins. And had we been there, if I'd been the Roman, if you'd been one of the Jewish leaders, you would have done it precisely the same thing. You would have done precisely the same thing. I want to start closing up here. The gospel's goal is not to merely condemn, though. He said, preach repentance and forgiveness. You know, the, the, the gospel means good news. But before there can be good news, or if good news is going to have any value, there has to be absolutely bad news. And this is one of the problems with our evangelism. We're going to people who have no sense of sin whatsoever and say, I got some good news for you. God loves you. And they go, well, you know, I already feel good. I don't need anything. So 
Thank God he brings us to a place of forgiveness. The heart of rainmaking prayer is not judgment. It's forgiveness. In a rainmaking intercessor, all smug religiosity, all angry judgment has been melted by the knowledge that his or her own sin needs absolute mercy and forgiveness and that it was purchased at the cost of his suffering. He says that the Christ should suffer and die and be raised in three days and that repentance, New Testament repentance, is the changing of the heart and the mind. We are out to change people's minds on who Jesus Christ is, but first they need to see their own sin. How many people have you seen finally come to church because of a crisis? And guess what? Usually when we're praying, the first thing our prayers produce is a crisis. So when you start praying for situations, it usually gets worse. But people aren't going to come unless they have a sense of need. George Whitfield was one of the leaders of the Great Awakening in the United States. Um, he preached to more people. It was just, it was amazing. And he preached without a microphone, but thousands, hundreds of thousands of people across the UK and also in the United States and other nations of the world. And Whitfield had a heart uh, for people, but he was a very holy man in his, in his life. But he would preach about the sin that people were caught up in. He would preach about how that they were in bondage. He would preach about how um, they were in chains. And then he would say, but you, your hearts are so hard, you can't even weep for yourself. And so he would say, so George Whitfield will weep for you. And it's said that he would throw his head back and begin to bellow and weep from his heart. And when that happened, the Holy Spirit would shoot through the crowd of tens and thousands they said you could hear him from uh, over a mile away. You could hear him. The, the, the air became still. The spirit was just moving. And people would fall down as if they'd been shot. And they would writhe in soul pain and tears and weeping and grieving over their sins. And when they got up, they were born again and they were filled with the spirit. Charles Spurgeon was robbed on the streets of London. He came home and he says, told his wife, and he says, but, you know, praise God. And she said, you're going to praise God for getting robbed? He said, well, no, but I do praise God for the fact that I didn't have all of my money with me. And he said, I'm also thankful that I wasn't hurt. He said, but most, most of all, he said, I, most of all, I'm thankful I was not the robber. Brothers and sisters, that's Mark Cox's heart tonight. That's, that's the heart of rainmaking prayer. That's the heart where we feel an empathy with sinners because except for the goodness, grace, and the mercy of God, that would be me. That would be me. I want to close with this. On the um, night of transfiguration, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up the hill his clothes begin to shine in a supernatural way. They became whiter than any white they'd ever seen. And suddenly there appears Moses and Elijah speaking with Jesus Christ. They were terrified. They, uh, this is in the Gospels. They were terrified. And you know, when Peter got afraid, what happened? He said something. And Peter said, 
Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let's build three tabernacles. And what he was doing, he didn't realize, was he was, he was demoting Jesus. He was pulling Christ down to the same level as Moses, this great figure of the Old Testament. He was the, the great lawgiver. He was singular in the Old Testament. And Elijah, who was the greatest of all the prophets. And he unwittingly had demoted Jesus and pulled him down to their level. And a cloud, a dense, thick cloud enveloped him. And it says they were terrified. And a voice boomed from the cloud and said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Wow. Friends, I don't know that we've really listened to the son. The father has to tell us again and again, don't keep elevating these things. Don't keep elevating this, that, and the other. The Son has spoken. And friends, when we pray rainmaking prayer, it's because we've listened to the Son. We know it's His church. We know it's His commission. We know it's His power and His gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for these dear saints. Thank you for those who are watching, those who might be watching later on. If you're here tonight, you um, are not walking with the Lord or you've fallen away from the Lord, and you know you need to make it right, and you need to ask him to come into your life afresh or for the first time, would you lift your hand? Is there anybody here that needs this gospel, this forgiveness of sins? Anybody at all? Amen. I don't see anyone. Okay, we do have someone, all right. Uh, it's hard to see with these lights. Also, if you're at home, I want to invite you to pray this prayer with me. It's not formula. It's not a magic. This is between you and Jesus Christ. It's a transaction between you and the Lord. Thank you, Father. Just say, Heavenly Father, I ask for your forgiveness. I do repent. I change my heart and my mind from living for myself to living for you. I lay down all my idols and my false gods. I lay down my judgment and my anger. You know my sin. I don't know my sin as well as I should, but you know it. And I ask you to forgive me and give me a heart of mercy heart that looks to you as a child looks to a father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you all. Thanks for listening.